following message is from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, go to trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad you're here, especially if you're a guest this morning. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Michael. I'm a pastor here at Trinity Grace. And as many of you know, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark here on Sunday morning since January. And our plan is to wrap this series up in two weeks on Easter Sunday. And throughout the book of Mark, we've seen a number of different things. But one of the things that we've seen is Jesus and the religious leaders engage in what we might call contentious relationship. The religious leaders in Mark, known as the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not happy with who Jesus is and they're not happy with what he's teaching people. In fact, they're so unhappy, they're so angry that they began to look for a way to have Jesus arrested and killed. And chapter 12 of Mark, which we're going to be looking at this morning, is really all about the religious leaders pressing in on Jesus. This chapter really highlights the conflict between Jesus and these leaders. In fact, most of chapter 12 is a debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus had just made his way into Jerusalem. He's trafficking around the temple and the religious leaders pounce on him in a sense. The goal of the religious leaders is that they're going to be able to trap Jesus into saying something spiritually or religiously blasphemous, or they're trying to trap him into saying something politically treasonous so that they can put a stop to his ministry. And as we pick up here in verse 28 of our passage this morning, we see one of the scribes who's been listening to the debate up to this point, and he comes and he approaches Jesus with a question. And it's a fairly simple question. Maybe even a question that you could envision yourself asking Jesus if given the chance. And the way Jesus answers, it really sheds light on how you and I are supposed to read the scriptures. How he answers, it sheds light on how you and I are to engage in relationships, both with God and with one another. In fact, you could say that Jesus' answer gives us a paradigm through which we're supposed to view our entire lives, a new set of glasses, so to speak. To see what Jesus has to say, you follow along as I read Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. It's printed for you in your bulletin. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, the scribe asked Jesus, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. 
I wonder if you've ever come across a pair of holographic glasses. Holographic glasses. These are glasses that look like those cardboard 3D glasses that you sometimes wear during movies. And we were at a Christmas party this past year with friends, and there were a stack of these holographic glasses at the party. And as you put on these glasses, you're supposed to look at Christmas lights, and they cause the lights to really glimmer uh, with different images. And so you put on one pair of glasses and the lights would turn into sparkling Santa faces. Uh, You'd put on another pair and the Christmas lights would turn into lots of small glowing snowmen. You put on another pair and it would turn the sparkling lights into reindeer faces. And it was actually kind of embarrassing how amazing I thought these holographic glasses were at the party. I was like an evangelist for these holographic glasses. Like, you got to try these. These are amazing. And they are amazing. The, the lenses completely changed the way I saw the entire room. The lenses, they colored and they filtered how I made sense of what I was seeing when I looked at light. And they were just fun. They were fun to wear. Me walking around with holographic glasses is a good picture to have in your mind this morning as you think about this question. What lenses are you wearing? What lenses color and filter the way you make sense of the Bible? What lenses inform the way that you worship and relate to God? What lenses are you wearing that shape the way you relate with and serve your friends and neighbors? It's a worthwhile question to spend some time considering. We all wear lenses that inform what we view as most important when it comes to relationships with God and with our neighbor. We all wear lenses that shape the way that we read the Bible. For instance, for us in Reformed circles, which I count myself a proud part of, by the way, we are prone to view our relationship with God and our relationship with neighbor. We're prone to read the scriptures through the lenses of right knowledge. You might call these the lenses of theological accuracy. And as we look through the lenses, it's easy to convince ourselves that if we know the right things about God, that that is the thing that's going to lead to a changed life. We also, as we wear these lenses, relate with people through these lenses. We gravitate towards those who we think, or we gravitate towards those who, who think like we do, and we attempt to convince those who disagree with us in our position. And while the lenses of theological accuracy are very important, don't hear what I'm not saying. I assume any professor that always said that, don't hear what I'm not saying. They aren't meant to be the primary lenses that we wear on a daily basis. If we're not careful, wearing the lenses of theological accuracy as our primary lenses are going to lead to deep spiritual pride and arrogance. Another set of lenses that we are prone to put on are the lenses of morality and obedience. We view our relationship with God as something that changes based on how well or how poorly we're doing at keeping the rules. We relate with other people based on what they do. If they're moral people, then we want to spend time with them. And if they're immoral, then we slowly pull away from them, condemn them. And we can also read the Bible through these lenses. 
looking at the Scripture with a singular focus on what we should do. We view the Bible as a big rule book as we look at it with these lenses on. And while the lenses of obedience are very important, very important, they're not meant to be the primary lenses that dictate our relationship with God and neighbor. If we're not careful, wearing these lenses as our primary lenses can lead to judgmental spirits and self-righteousness and a sense of moral superiority over others. These are the lenses that people like you and I are tempted to wear. At least I am. And if they're not meant to be the primary lenses through which we live life, the question is, what are the right lenses? That's the question. In our passage, Jesus gives us a new pair of lenses, so to speak, to try on as we seek to relate with God and relate with our neighbor. Jesus, in response to the scribe's question, hands him the lenses of love and invites him to try those lenses on as he thinks about how he relates to God and to other people. Jesus is saying that there's nothing more important for us to embrace Nothing more important that we can give God or other people than love. It's important to know where this scribe's question originates. The Jewish religious leaders were experts in God's law. They knew their Old Testament very well. It was their Bible. In fact, they studied and parsed God's law so closely that they came up with 613 exact different laws that can be found in God's Word, in the Old Testament. And a common question among these religious leaders as they gathered together and bantered around was how did these 613 laws stack up against each other? What was the most important law of them all? What was the most important thing when it comes to God's commands? And this scribe, noticing how intelligent and wise Jesus is, he decides to ask him what he thinks. And notice Jesus' answer from our passage. It's very straightforward. It's not even nuanced in a way that we would like it to be, in a way that would make us as Reformed Presbyterians feel a little more comfortable. He doesn't do a roundabout. Jesus doesn't mince words. He doesn't even tell a parable like he sometimes does in other places. He says it very plainly. The most important commandment of them all is to love God and to love your neighbor. Jesus, in verse 29, is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, which Garfield read for us this morning. It's known as the Shema, which is the Hebrew word that means hear. Shema Israel Adonai Elo. Heinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the Shema, and it was the fundamental confession of faith for the Jewish people. Faithful Jews would have woken up in the morning and recited this on a daily basis. It was Israel's Apostles' Creed, in a sense encapsulating their most essential beliefs. There's one God, and He's our God, and we're called to love Him. And by highlighting the mind, the heart, the soul, the strength, it was meant to communicate that we're called to love God with everything that we are, our intelligence, our emotions, our obedience. It's all encapsulated there to love God with all of our faculties, with our entire person. 
In the mind of Jesus, love is the main thing. It's the only thing that's tied to everything we are. Think about it. We're not called to believe with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, although that would be good. We're not called to think with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not even primarily called to obey with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, though that would be good. Jesus in this passage says we're called to love. Love is the fundamental disposition of response to God and what he's done for us. And this love leads to right belief. This love is supposed to lead to right thinking. This love is supposed to lead to right actions. But love is the primary thing. It's the fountainhead from which everything else springs. The thing that all these other activities flow from. We can actually learn quite a bit of anthropology from the Bible. We can learn about who we are as we read the pages of Scripture. And as you look at the Bible, you see that we are first and foremost, and if you've never considered this, this can transform the way that you read the Scriptures. As for me, we are first and foremost lovers. We're lovers. We're created to give and to receive love. We are created in God's image And in his image, God has existed in a community of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity past. And so love is stamped onto our DNA. This means that we are not thinkers or doers first and foremost. We are not walking heads like with stick bodies. If anything, if we're going to draw a diagram on a picture, it should be a heart with sticks. (laughs) That's the way that we should envision ourselves. We're not thinkers and doers, we're lovers, we're driven by our affections. Think about it. It's why you can know all the right answers. You can have memorized systematic theologies. You can know who God is and exactly what he commands, yet you find yourself engaged in the same sin over and over and over again. It's because you're not driven by what you know, you're driven by what you love. You're driven by your affections. You're a lover not primarily a thinker. I wonder if you've ever heard the Latin phrase sin qua non, as we're talking about not being a thinker. Let's talk some Latin together. We are Presbyterian after all. Literally means without which it could not be. Without which it could not be. It's meant to refer to something that's absolutely necessary, an essential condition. You could say, especially here in South Texas, that the sin qua non of guacamole is real fresh avocados. Without real fresh avocados and people that come visit our city, they find it amazing that people come and make guacamole at your table. That's like a parlor trick for them. But without real fresh avocados, you don't have guacamole. It's an essential condition, the ingredient that is absolutely necessary, the sin qua non of guacamole. Well, the sin qua non of following Jesus is love. Without love, we are nothing. Love is absolutely necessary as we relate to God and other people. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard it at almost any wedding you've been to. Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith, So as to remove mountains, 
but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, without love, what's the point? You can show up to church every Sunday. You can memorize Calvin's systematic theology, the institutes of the Christian religion. You can give away tons of money, maybe even reverse tithe. But without love, it's all pointless. It doesn't matter. Love is the sin qua non, the thing absolutely necessary for those who claim to follow Jesus. And in our passage, Jesus distills the entirety of God's law, the entirety of the Hebrew Bible into this absolutely necessary thing, love. Jesus highlights our love for God and our love for neighbor. He highlights our love in our vertical relationship with God and in our horizontal relationships as we engage with other people. And seeing how essential love is in Jesus's mind, let's take just a few minutes to explore what love for God and love for neighbor might look like in our lives. These aren't necessarily our two points. They kind of are, but don't worry. It's not going to be too long, I promise. This is a weird sermon. It didn't come together like I normally like them to, just FYI, taking you along with me, okay? First, let's look at love in our vertical relationship. Let's look at our love for God. You may have noticed that this earnest scribe, he approaches Jesus and he asks him a question in verse 28. He says, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus responds by naming two commandments. One about loving God from Deuteronomy 6, and one about loving neighbor, which comes from Leviticus 19. And Jesus combines these two commandments into one by saying in verse 31 of our passage, there's no other commandment greater than these. Jesus is saying that these two commands come as a package deal. He ties them so closely together and answering this scribe's question that he makes us believe that they shouldn't ever be separated. And while these two commands come as a unified package, you get a sense that there's an order to them. There's a first and a second. Love of God is primary because if love of God isn't properly in place, then there won't be much hope or motivation for loving other people, especially when things get tough. And a question we need to ask or to answer as we think about what it means to love God is this question, and it might have been rattling around your brain ever since I mentioned the word love. What is love? What is love? Because you, how you define that really dictates how you engage in this command. You might know that there are a number of different words for love in the language in the New Testament, uh, in the language of the New Testament. Um, there are four Greek words for love in the New Testament. Sometimes the New Testament writers use the word philia. It's translated English love in our Bible, which is a brotherly kind of love, and it highlights friendship. Sometimes the New Testament writers use the word eros, especially in Corinthians when Paul is talking to them in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 about the sensuality and the sexual immorality that's happening among them. Eros is a romantic type of love. It's a sensual love. Sometimes the word love in our Bible is the Greek word storge. And it's used to refer to love that develops between family members, parents, and children. In other times, and most frequently, the New Testament writer uses the word, which we've all heard if we've been in church for any amount of time, probably agape. 
which is the word used by Mark here in chapter 12. And it's a word that highlights an action or a sacrifice. It doesn't always come naturally. It's not necessarily an emotion or a feeling. Okay, that's your seminary lesson for the day. To love God isn't a nebulous feeling. It's not intangible. It's an action. And where can you and I learn the right actions that show love for God? Well, you could say that all of the commands in the Bible are a means to an end. They're a means that lead to the end, which is love. The commands in the Bible, the instructions we find, actually show us how to love in concrete ways. We don't have to guess. We don't have to read a book about God's love language. It's right here. Black words on white paper. They're a blueprint for the kind of love that God desires. And so as we think about what it looks like to love God, we can look at the first part of the Ten Commandments as a start that deals with our relationship with God. We see there that loving God means having no other gods, to move away from idols, to honor God's name, to set aside one day a week for worship. And the implications in the way that we live out these overarching commands are really what the Bible's all about. It's spelled out in, in, in the Bible for different people and in different contexts. The commands of God, His law, they're intensely personal. I love God with the way I worship, with what I allow to capture my heart's affections, with how I think about Him. That is important. With my emotions and the way that they're inclined towards God, with my time and money, I can love Him with those things. You're actually shaping and forming your love for God this morning. That's what we believe. It's why Sunday worship is so important. It's a weekly opportunity to realign our heart's love on God by replaying the gospel of God's love in community with one another, asking how your week has been even, by praying the gospel, by speaking the gospel, by singing God's promises, by singing the gospel by hearing the gospel preached, by eating at this gospel table behind me. And we don't always feel much emotion when we're here. I know. Sometimes we're just going through the motions. Sometimes it's all we can do to get ourselves in the car with our kids, having fights with our spouse, and be sitting here. But make no mistake, we are loving God even now as we guide our attention and our confessions and our heart's affections towards Him. We're called to love God with all our mind, soul, heart, and strength. We're called to love the Lord our God, our God, who has done amazing things on our behalf, the God who we know personally, the God who rescued us from sin and slavery, the God who first loved us in very sacrificial and tangible ways when we were unlovable. And that love we have towards God, the love that we've received from Him, is meant to propel us out into the second kind of love that Jesus highlights in our passage. And this is the second point, I guess, if you're taking notes. The love of neighbor as ourself. By tying these two commandments together, Jesus is saying that you can't love God and then turn around and hate other people. You can't love God with all that you are and hate people who were created in God's image. Believer and non-believer alike. You can't love God and be a jerk to people. In fact, according to 1 John 4, which Stephanie read for us this morning from the New Testament, if you hate your neighbor, it reveals that you don't really understand what it means to love God. 
And we can't get this wrong. If we're cold, if we're unapproachable, if we're judgmental and caustic with one another, we shouldn't deceive ourselves. We are not really loving God. So what does it look like to love our neighbor? Well, love for our neighbor isn't a nebulous feeling. It's not intangible. Like we've said, the kind of love Jesus is calling us to here is an action. It's a decision. It's not always easy or natural to love others in the way that Jesus calls us to. So how do we know what love looks like? Well, as we alluded to before, all the commandments in the Bible are a means to love. So think about the second half of the Ten Commandments for a minute. The part of the Ten Commandments that deal with our horizontal relationships, with how we treat others. We tend to think of these commandments in the negative. It's about what we're not supposed to do. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. But these negative commandments also have implicit positive qualities. We don't just stay away from certain behaviors. We're also called to engage in positive behaviors. Think about it for a minute. We love our neighbor not just by staying away from their spouse, We love our neighbor by honoring marriage and loving our own spouse. We love our neighbor just not by abstaining from taking their stuff, not stealing from them, but by protecting their right to have personal property, by respecting that. We love our neighbor not by simply refusing to lie about them, but by actively protecting their reputation and speaking only positive things about them in other people's presence. There's a positive aspect to these negative commands. Two sides of the same coin. This is what loving neighbor looks like. The law is intensely relational and personal. The commands show us how to love in concrete ways. You don't steal. You respect other people's bodies. You hold up a biblical sexual ethic that marriage is between one man and one woman. And it's not always easy, and it might not always receive a warm welcome from your friends or our culture, but it's how we love people well. Love does not necessarily mean that other people like us. In fact, sometimes the most loving thing you can do for another person causes them to hate you. And we're called to do it with specific people. Not just an idea of general humanity. We're called to do it with those that we live with, with those that we work with on a daily basis, those that we see at our kids' sporting events and neighborhood gatherings in schools. I can love others with my words and my time, with my listening, as I relate to real human beings. On top of that, I just want to highlight this that Jesus calls us to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. And that's interesting. Jesus here assumes a certain degree of self-love. He implicitly calls self-love good in this passage. It's not a bad thing to love yourself. Now, there's a bad way to love yourself. Always looking in the mirror, telling yourself how great you are. I guess that would be bad. But it's not bad to appreciate God's image in your life. And this leads to a probing question. If Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, what would that look like? I don't think it's as easy for some of us as we assume. Think of the way you sometimes talk to yourself. Sometimes we are so cruel and hateful to ourselves. We would never talk to other people the way we talk to ourselves in our minds. Think about the way you sometimes care for yourself. 
doing things that you know are going to bring harm to yourself and to those that you love. We'd never wish that kind of harm that our decisions bring us on other people. If we can't properly love ourselves, it makes sense that we might find it hard to love others in the way Jesus invites us to here as we love ourselves. So in this passage, Jesus sets the bar high. He comes and he calls us to love with all that we are, called, calls us to love others in sacrificial ways. And if you're like me, you feel how far short you fall in this great command. And you begin to ask, who can love like this? And if I invest in the joy and the flourishing of other people, if I love them, then who's going to invest in my joy and in my flourishing? Who's going to love me if I love others? And they're fair questions. I once heard of a pastor who liked to ask a very specific question of people. It'd be an interesting question. I don't know if I have the guts to ask it over the table and just let it hang, but he would ask this question, have you been loved well? Have you been loved well? And he asked it because he knew that how you've been loved in your life often dictates how you love yourself. Those who've been loved well tend to love others well. It's a question that takes Jesus' command here very seriously. It's really all about love. And the scribe understands this. You can tell by the way he responds to Jesus. He says, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one. There's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, remember the scribe and Jesus are in the temple court when this conversation takes place. It was a place where whole burnt offerings and sacrifices were offered for sin on a daily basis, maybe even happening right in front of their eyes as this debate is taking place. And the scribe hears Jesus and he considers the command to love with all that we are. And he concludes that this summary of the law exceeds all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices that the temple could ever give. And Jesus thinks he gets it. This scribe is not far from the kingdom of God. He's on a good trajectory. The scribe is recognizing his need for a greater capacity to love and a greater sacrifice that can take away this lack of capacity. In other words, to fulfill God's commandment, what he needs and what you and I need is a greater sacrifice. And Jesus has been saying throughout the gospel of Mark in very subtle ways, and he's soon going to say it in a huge extravagant way, I am that sacrifice. And when Jesus sacrifices himself for us, even if we've never experienced love from others, we know what it means to be loved well. Because we can't love the way we should, God sends love incarnate to walk among us. Ultimately, love is something that we receive from Jesus and then move and live out of. For this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin. You have been loved well. You have been loved so well by Jesus. And now Jesus calls you and I to follow him by loving God and loving others well in response to the love that we've graciously received. That's good news for us this morning.
Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have loved us so well. Thank you for the way that you have come to sacrifice on our behalf so that we might be brought back into relationship with our Father who has loved us from all eternity past. We thank you that this body, your body given for us, your blood shed for us, is the means by which you draw us back in, the means by which you show us how deep and wide and long your love are for us. We pray this morning that as we come to this table that you would reassure us of that great love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.